Good morning. He is risen. There you go. My name's Greg. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, one thing, even if you've been going here a long time, you may not know about me, is uh, I was in band in, uh, in high school and middle school, even elementary school. I was a band nerd. Uh, I was not good. I played the trombone, not well, but just well enough, apparently. Um, they never kicked me out. To the best of my knowledge, they never even discussed kicking me out. Um, I, uh, I did debate every year of high school if this would be my last year in band, but there were, uh, there were three reasons that always kept me in band. One, it was an easy A, and I didn't have many A's, so I certainly needed the easy ones. Uh, two, my friends were there. Right? All my friends were in band, essentially. Some of us, like I said, had been in band together since fifth grade. And the last one was we took cool trips. We, we went to cool places, and really, it's not like we did much music stuff. Like, we just went to a cool place, played once, and called it good. One of those trips was uh, San Francisco. Uh, we, we went to Alcatraz. We went to a Giants game. Uh, we, we played at Pier 39 for like half an hour, maybe. But I remember that first, uh, that first afternoon in San Francisco, we got off the bus, and um, I was with a, a sizable group of people. We were just walking around, checking things out, and we noticed this corner. There was, there was a small group of people around a guy that had like this little table. So we went over to go see what it was that he was doing. Uh, and as we got close, uh, what we realized was he, he had the, he was that classic three cups with one ball game. You know what I'm talking about? Like you move the cups around. Every once in a while he shows you where it is and, and you're trying to track. And, and, and sometimes it's easy. You think you got it and you're wrong. And, and sometimes you actually do get it. Well, so he moves it around. He's not just doing it for fun, right? Like the guy's trying to make money. So he would stop and say, anybody want to make a bet? Somebody say, yeah. I'll bet 10 bucks. He say, show me the money. Break out your $10 bill. He say, all right, which, which cup? He points to the cup. He say, this one, you sure? Yep. Lift it up. If you, if you get it right, you're 10 bucks richer, right? If you get it wrong, that man is 10 bucks richer. We watched for a while because this guy was, he was funny. He was good at what he was doing. It was hard to track with the ball. We saw several people win, right? We, we saw a lot of people actually win the game. We saw at least a little more people lose, Right? The guy was pretty good at it. So we're going, and I know I'm not going to bet money on it. There's no way in the world I'm going to bet any money on it. But I'm competitive, right? I want to see, like, can I actually track if I was willing to wager money, would I beat this man, right? And so I'm watching, all my friends are watching, we're going. And, and there's this one time that, in particular, I was so confident the ball was under the middle cup. Like, no-brainer to me, right? The guy says, anybody want to make a bet? I wasn't going to make it bad, even though I was confident it was in that cup. There's no way. This one guy said, yeah. And the guy said, how much? 40 bucks. Show me the money. So he whips out two 20s. And all of us are thinking, okay, this was an easy one. Like, this is a good one to lay 40 down on. And the guy says, which cup? And remember, I'm thinking middle cup. The guy goes, the cup on the right. And we're like, what? No. And the guy said, this one? Yep. You sure? Yep. Lifts up the cup, no ball. Guy takes away the 40 bucks. Then the guy behind the table did something different. He said, anybody else want to make it bet? There's just two cups now. He hadn't done this any other time. And we're all looking at each other like, man, 50-50 chance, and we all think it's that cup. All of us. How many of you think I placed a bet? Yeah, some of you know me. I did not place a bet at all. I don't, I don't bet anything. 
My friends and I used to play Texas Hold'em together. It was a $5 buy-in. We played for like six hours. Like, I'm cheap. There's no way I'm making a gamble. But we're looking around, and I see this guy from the trumpet section that I'd known for years. And he's thinking about it. I'm like, oh, man. And part of me wants him to, right? And part of me is like, dude, that's crazy. Don't do it. Well, he goes, I'll make a bet. The guy goes, how much? 80 bucks, right? <laughs> We're high schoolers. This is the 90s, okay? This is, I, this is all his money that his parents gave him for our whole trip to spend meals, everything, right? And my heart is just like, right now it's beating, even though I know what happened. Uh, so anyway, the guy goes, show me the money. And, and the guy from the trumpet section whips out 420s. And the guy goes, which cup? And he picks the, the middle cup. I mean, now it's the right cup because the other cup's gone. He picks it. The guy goes, you sure? Yep. Raises up the cup. No ball. No ball. My friend drops down to the ground, one hand covering his face, his other hand still holding the money up. And the guy behind the table walks over and takes his 80 bucks. And, and man, I left that experience. Like I said, I, I already was not a gambler, right? Less than four times in my life have I laid down a dollar on something. Um, my buddies would try and, and get me to like make bets, just stupid stuff, like can you make this shot or, or who's going to win this race or whatever. I'd never take it. They'd, they'd try and goad me into taking it. They'd make fun of me. Like, no, I'm not betting you. But this experience convinced me, man, I was never going to get duped. I was never going to be fooled. I was never going to gamble. If you don't believe in Jesus, I wonder if believing in him feels like it's a long shot to you. Like buying into the resurrection that we're celebrating today. Right? We're saying Jesus is alive. Is that an insane gamble to you? Now, a lot of you, I assume, do believe in Jesus. Maybe you grew up in the church, and maybe for you it's hard to even remember a time when you didn't believe. You've been to every Easter Sunday your whole life. And you do know there was a time when, when it went from, yes, I believe to Jesus is Lord. But, but even that, it's hard to remember exactly when that was. And for others, you, you definitely remember when you made that decision. Whether you grew up in the church or not, deciding to trust Jesus with your whole life was a massive decision for you. Maybe it felt like a gamble to steal from Texas Hold'em. Maybe it felt like you were pushing all your chips in. Because certainly what Jesus asked for is an all-in decision. Now life is full of bets. Every time you hop in the car, there's a gamble there, right? You're, you're betting that you're going to be a good driver. Even more so, you're, you're betting that the other drivers on the road are going to follow the laws of the road. You're betting that that car headed the opposite direction at 45 miles an hour, 4,000-pound car, isn't going to cross that little dashed line into your lane. We make bets about our career, about relationships, where you live. Well, Jesus followers, you've made a bet that the resurrection happened, but I, I wouldn't say it's a gamble. And though I, I can't prove to you that the resurrection happened, I also can't prove to you, nor can you prove that the resurrection didn't happen. What we can do is look at the evidence we, we can look at the text. We can look at what historians and, and some others ha have said about the resurrection. And, and what we need to do is make the decision that makes the most sense. David Platt says, what is most plausible when it comes to the empty tomb? Now, historians, they don't question that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth, that, that, that he taught what, what we have in our Bible, right? that he was crucified. They also don't 
they also don't question that the tomb, and, and when I say historians, I mean Christian and non-Christian historians agree that a few days after Jesus was crucified, the tomb was empty. Now, there are different ideas as to how that happened, but they agree that the, the tomb was empty, and there were a ton of witnesses that saw Jesus. Now, before and after Jesus, there were dozens of messianic movements. And nearly each time uh, in the movement, the, the messianic leader was killed, often executed. And do you know what happened to that movement? It ended. Movement over. When the guy who says he's the Messiah dies, people leave. They went back to regular life. Only one movement didn't end when the messianic leader died. Tim Keller said instead of ending, it exploded because the leader's death wasn't the end. Jesus rose from the grave. There's a Christian hip-hop artist, Shy Lin, and if you're surprised I listen to Christian hip-hop, you should be because I don't really. Um, <laughs> probably don't look like I listen to hip-hop. Um, Shy Lin has a song. Uh, it's called Jesus is Alive, which I will not perform for you, but the chorus goes something like this. I'm just going to read it. Plato is dead. Socrates is dead. Aristotle and Immanuel Kant are dead. Nietzsche and Darwin are dead. However, Jesus is alive. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Gandhi's dead. The list goes on and on. However, Jesus is alive. Christians, we've staked not only this life on the resurrection, but eternity on the resurrection. This is huge. This isn't something you want to roll the dice on, so to speak. The resurrection is something you want to be as sure about as possible, one way or the other. In fact, not thinking through the resurrection, that's what feels like rolling the dice. Christians, if you're wrong about the resurrection, as Sherry read, your life is a joke. The Apostle Paul says, I'll read it for you again in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we have hope only in this life, meaning no hope for eternal life, if we have if in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all, all people most to be pitied. Right? More than anyone else on the planet, the world should feel sorry for us. More, more than people that are suffering from diseases, more than uh, people that have been through natural disasters and have lost everything, more than, uh, more than people that have been horribly abused and mistreated, we should be pitied above all. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we're banking everything on a dead teacher that claimed he could take away our sins. If he didn't raise from the dead, the Bible tells us you're still dead in sin because we can't deal with our sin. I had a high school friend. We were talking about religion. We were talking about Christianity. We were talking about eternal life and the afterlife, and he compared it to like a Nintendo video game. I grew up in the Nintendo era where you passed levels. And he said, you've got control, and you're trying to get through the different levels. And what you have to do is do enough good. Your good decisions have to outweigh your bad decisions. And if the video game was written that way, that would be totally fine. But the creator, God, didn't write the game or life that way. God's standard isn't just to do enough good to outweigh the bad you've done. God's standard is perfection. Our sin puts us in a debt that we owe. We owe our life. A substitute could only come from someone who's perfectly righteous. That's the only one that could pay the price for us. So if my brother, who loves me, wanted to give his life for me, that's not enough. Right? My brother's a pretty good guy, but I grew up with him. <laughs> I know he's not perfect. I know he's a sinner. 
Only Jesus lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live. And that's why Jesus could die the death that we were supposed to die. He could be our substitute. Jesus was fully aware that without his death, humanity had no chance. Zero hope. He had to die. By dying, he took on the wrath of God for us. And maybe you hear wrath, and you go, wait, why, why do I deserve wrath? Now, that's a good question. So each one of us has some injustice that if we saw it happen or if we heard about it on the news or read an article about it, our blood would just boil. It could be human trafficking, racism. It could be the disabled getting mistreated, elderly people or children getting abused. And when we see that, what we want is justice. Right? We demand it. So the perpetrator goes before the judge, and if the judge lets this guilty party off, we're livid. Some people go to social media and go crazy. Other people write to a politician. Maybe others go out and protest. We certainly have seen vigilantes try to take justice into their own hands. And, and what this longing for justice is, is it's God's stamp in us. The Bible calls it imago Dei. This is part of the being in the image of God. We want justice because God has built that into us because he is a just God. Deep inside, we know that just, justice matters. God is perfectly just. Your desire for justice doesn't even compare to God's desire for perfect justice. And perfect justice means that he can't look the other way. Right? Our sin isn't just this human-to-human offense, but we've sinned against a perfectly holy God, a perfectly just God. So this is where the righteous wrath of God comes up against sin. And, and when we see some atrocity and we hear that God's going God's to gonna take care of that, that there will be justice someday for that, we cheer. Right? Maybe, maybe you've been driving down the freeway before, and I'm pretty sure I've used this illustration. But you're driving down the freeway, maybe going a little over the speed limit, let's be honest. You're driving, and this person comes flying by you. 20, 30 miles an hour over the speed limit. And, and not just flying by, but weaving in and out of cars. It scares you. It, it, it ticks you off they were going so fast. I don't know if you felt that before, but I have. right? And what you wish is that there was a cop here right now. Come on, my tax dollars. Where's that cop? And then the unmarked car up there, you had no idea, flashes those lights. And you, you fist pump. Because you are so excited that justice is going to happen. That guy is getting a ticket. He pulls over. You drive by. You roll down your window so he can see you smiling because you're so happy. And then a couple days later, you find yourself driving down Brady Road. If you don't know, Brady Road's pretty steep. You can get going a little fast there without even meaning to, but sometimes you mean to. Well, you're driving down Brady Road a little bit fast, and one of Camus finest, your tax dollars at work, <laughs> they're there. And they, and they pull you over. Now, what do you want? You want grace. You want the, them to give you a stern warning that you'll feel bad about for a couple days. <laughs> and then they let you off, right? Even though you deserve a ticket, you want to be given what you don't deserve. Not only is God perfectly just and perfectly holy, He's perfect in love. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's compassionate. We needed Jesus to take on the wrath of God in our place because God couldn't just look the other way. Right? We expect the human judge to deliver the right sentence. 
Certainly, we expect nothing less of the judge. Someone has to pay the price for us to be forgiven. We needed Jesus, the spotless, perfect, sinless one, to be sacrificed for us. So we're going to look in the gospel of Mark. You can turn, turn to Mark chapter 15 if you have your Bibles. And all four of the gospel accounts talk about the resurrection. Uh, I've already done Luke a couple years ago. We did John a few weeks ago, so uh, I ended up in Mark. And, and I'm actually I'm really, really excited about what Mark has to say and, and how he says it in particular. So as we're going through this, we're going to hear that the, the tomb is empty. And what I want you to ask, both Christians and, and people that, that don't follow Jesus yet, I want you to ask, what is most plausible here? What makes the most sense I'll talk about some of the different theories, uh, and I can't go exhaustively into them, but we'll get into them a bit. So Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. And we don't know much about the centurion, but we do know that as he watched Jesus die, there was something that happened that convinced him that he was the Son of God. Verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph, and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Repeatedly, you might have noticed that Mark mentions these women. Like a few times in just a short span, he wants you to know who they are. He wants you to know that this is an account of what happened, not a myth or a legend. These witnesses were there. They saw it. You, you might note that it even says they saw where he was laid. Right? There was no confusion three days later. These were the women that saw where his body was laid. They didn't get lost. They didn't get mistaken. Mark's gospel was, was the first of the gospels written. It was written when these women were still alive. So a reader could read this and go, wait, those are the women that saw it? I wonder if I can find them. And they could go find those women and verify that, that what Mark said was true, that that is what they saw, what they experienced. One of the theories uh, for the empty tomb is called the, the swoon theory. And what, what, it, what it is is that uh, Jesus passed out, didn't actually die on the cross. Uh, so the, what the theory says is Jesus, uh, he, was, he was super weak, right, from, from the overnight trials, from the beating, and then the crucifixion. So he passed out. They thought he was dead. So what we have here in Mark is Mark tells us that Joseph asked Pilate for the body. Pilate's surprised that he's dead already. Pilate asked the centurion 
if he's dead. He doesn't ask a doctor. A doctor specializes in life. He asks a centurion who specializes in death, who knows how many crucifixions the centurion had seen. He asks him, he says, yes, he's dead. So he gives the body then to Joseph. They wrap him up. They put him in the tomb. They move the rock in front of the tomb. So uh, for the swoon theory to be true, they had to be mistaken that he was dead. They had to put him in the tomb. A few days later, uh, Jesus recovers in the tomb, takes off the, the linens, gets up, manages to have the strength to move the rock that seals the tomb. Uh, and, and remember, these were wounds that were inflicted in order to kill him. Uh, the, the, he, he is recovered from in just three days. Then he manages to get around the Roman guards. Right? There, was a, there was a garrison there. That's 16 Roman guards, trained professionals that Jesus would have had to get around. So does that explanation, does the swoon theory seem plausible to you? It does not to me. Verse 1 of chapter 16, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Sloan, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on in the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who rolled away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? They're not looking for a resurrected Jesus right now. They're looking for Jesus to be dead in the grave. Now what's interesting is three times in Mark, Mark records Jesus saying that he would rise from the dead after three days. But uh, it happens in Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10. But no one has it on their radar. It says the women are coming with the spices because they're going to complete his burial. They, they didn't have a chance because of the Sabbath. They had to wait. None of the gospel accounts record someone saying, you know what, it's been three days, and I remember Jesus saying something about rising from the dead. Let's go check this morning. It wasn't on their radar. Well, why not if he said it would happen? Because in their minds, the resurrection of Jesus was just as unlikely as it is to so many people today in 2019. The Greeks had no category for resurrection. In their minds, death was, was the soul being liberated from the body. The Jews, they, they did have a category for general resurrection, like, like the world being renewed, but not individual resurrection. And it's normal, I think it's easy for us to have the line of thought that, oh, way back, these, these ancient minds, this ancient worldview, they, they, were, they were way more open. They were, they were open to believing in a resurrection, even looking for it. But the four gospel accounts don't say anything like that. And what we know of Jewish culture and Greek culture then doesn't account for that. Verse 4, And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. He said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The women come, and they find the empty tomb. Mark said before, remember, they saw where he was laid. They, they weren't confused about where the tomb was. They meet the angel. The angel says, Jesus has risen from the dead. So what other options are there then for the empty tomb? Well, John, the Gospel of John, he records Mary's assumption, which is that someone had stolen the body. So who, who could have stolen the body? Let's start with the Romans. The, the Romans, they stuck, like I said, a garrison, 16 
trained guards to make sure that it wasn't stolen. And obviously, some of them, they, they took shifts sleeping and guarding and all that. If one of them were to break the official seal that was on the tomb, they were a dead man walking. Really, they had no motivation to steal the body. Right? The, the Jews had hoped that Jesus was going to liberate the Jewish people from Roman rule. Right? This would only fuel those hopes. I don't think it was the Romans. Jewish leaders, first off, it's a big leap to imagine that these religious bookworms are going to pull off the tactical feat of, of getting Jesus' body out from the tomb under the nose of these trained professionals. But why would they? Well, the, the best explanation I've ever heard, which isn't very good, um, says that maybe they wanted to do it to beat the disciples to it. Like they, they thought the disciples were going to steal the body, so we'll beat them to it. We'll go steal the body first, because that makes sense. Um, that way, once the disciples start claiming that Jesus has, re- has resurrected, they could produce the body, and that would squash everything the disciples taught. The problem is they never produced a body. So I don't think it was the Jews. The disciples are the other option. And again, we're talking some fishermen, tax collector, physician, some other guys. Let's pretend that maybe they could pull this off. Have you ever tried to keep a lie secret? It's possible, or it's it is possible. It's easier when it's just you, but when you start involving other people, right, you, you get to full-blown conspiracy, it gets really hard to keep everybody lying together, to keep all the stories together. The, the great historian uh, Eusebius around AD 314 was the first to argue that it was inconceivable that such a well-planned and thought-out conspiracy could succeed. Eusebius satirically imagined how the disciples might have motivated each other to take this route. So this is, this is their pep talk to one another. Let us band together to invent all the miracles and resurrection appearances which we never saw. And let us carry the sham even to death. Why not die for nothing? Why dislike torture and whipping inflicted for no good reason? Let us go out to all the nations, overthrow their institutions, and denounce their gods. And even if we don't convince anybody at least we'll have the satisfaction of drawing down ourselves the punishment of our own deceit. That's a great pep talk. Chuck Colson, special counsel to President Nixon during the Watergate scandal in the 60s, he knows full well how difficult it is to keep a conspiracy together. This is what he said. I know how impossible it is for a group of people, even some of the most powerful people in the world, to maintain a lie. The Watergate cover-up lasted only a few weeks before the first conspirator broke and turn state evidence. Stolen body, I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense. One of the problems with the stolen body is the witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that at one time, Jesus appeared to over 500 witnesses at once. So as the early church is forming, there were people all over the place that you could talk to about seeing Jesus, about hearing Jesus. One argument against the witnesses is that they were hallucinating, all of them, right? I don't, I don't think I've hallucinated. Um, hallucinations, from everything I understand, are very individual. They're certainly not contagious. 500 people don't have the same hallucination. Witnesses are incredibly helpful. If someone tells you a story and says, yeah, that guy saw it, you can go ask that guy and find out if it's true. Like I said, during the formation of the early church, for decades, 
you could go talk to witnesses while they were still alive. Pascal said, I only believe in histories told by witnesses who would have had their throats slit. Now, just because you die for something does not mean it's true. But it does mean you believe it. Right? I'm not about to die for a lie. My guess is you aren't either. They believed that they saw the risen Jesus. The disciples saw him. They touched him. They ate with him. They spoke with him. Over 500 witnesses hallucinating that they saw Jesus doesn't seem plausible. Muhammad, 500 plus years later, said that it wasn't Jesus that died on the cross, that it was basically Jesus' doppelganger or a stunt double. That would mean that Judas had the wrong guy, and Judas was close enough to kiss him. That would mean that the disciples were all mistaken, that, that the Jews who passionately wanted this man dead were incorrect, that Jesus' own mom was mistaken that that was her son dying on the cross. I don't think the doppelganger theory makes any sense either. So these are the leading theories, and none of them hold water. Now, you may have reasons for not believing in God, but what do you do with the empty tomb? If Jesus rose from the dead, that changes everything. The Bible proclaims that he died. Three days later, he rose, that he paid the price for sin by dying on the cross. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, defeated death, meaning that the payment for our sins was enough, right? The payment went through. The resurrection, if it's true, changes everything. 2 Corinthians 5.19, the Apostle Paul says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that, we, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says, we implore you. And I say this morning, I implore you, believe in Jesus as a Savior from your sin and yourself. Repent, turn to him and trust in him. If the tomb is empty, what is keeping you from making Jesus Lord of your life? You might have big reasons to not believe in God, huge barriers that keep you from believing in Jesus. But what do you do with the resurrection? Wrestle with that. Do not settle. In a bit, uh, after I'm done preaching, we'll have our prayer team in the back. Uh, Jeff, Garrett, uh, Dan, and Tammy, they'll be back there ready to pray. If you want to talk to them about whatever it is that keeps you from believing in Jesus, they'll, they'll be there to talk to you. I'd love to talk with you after the service as well. Or maybe, maybe you're here today, and at one time you did believe, and, and you believed to the point that it changed your life, but over the years you've strayed from Jesus. Maybe totally on purpose, or, or maybe you don't even know how it happened. Jesus is calling you today with open arms. He loves you. He forgives you. Christ followers, you believe in the resurrection, and that should change everything. What has not changed in your life? What do you continue to hold on to as if Jesus didn't die and raise from the dead to free you from that sin? What do you run after as if it is the God that loves you, the God that gives you life? Church attender, maybe you've been going to church, whether it's this one or other churches, for years and years. You believe in the resurrection. 
You believe in God's word, but do you follow Jesus? Is Jesus Lord of your life? Because that's the kind of belief that the Bible talks about. It's not just intellectual. It is a holistic belief that changes every part of you. The resurrection should radically change you. So how do you respond to the resurrection? Verse 7 in chapter 16. The angel says, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And if you're holding a Bible right now, if you look below that verse, there's a little note from the publisher that says the following verses, the rest of chapter 16, which ends the Gospel of Mark. It says that those verses, after verse 8, which I just read to you, those verses are not in the earliest manuscripts. Right? We have over 5,800 Greek manuscripts, right? more than any other ancient text. It's not even close. So the earliest of those man- manuscripts, which are dated like somewhere around like 140 to maybe 160 A.D., so within 100 years, within 100 years of the Gospels being written, we, we've got those earliest manuscripts, and, and verses 9 through 20 aren't in there. So what's going on? Well, one idea, and I think it makes sense. I don't know for sure, but one idea is that as the scribes were, were copying these down to make another copy, they're reading, and they read verse 8, and they think, that's a terrible ending, right? Just like some of you, you can't handle a movie that doesn't get resolved, right? These scribes, they wonder, could they not handle it? Because it says, it says, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid, the end, right? And, and Mark, this is the first gospel written. You can't just flip to John as, as a reader early on and go, what happened? And here's what I think Mark's doing. I think it's beautiful. I think it's brilliant. It, this is a crazy cliffhanger, right? He doesn't wrap it up nicely for you. He wants you to wonder and imagine, what did the women do? How did they respond to the news that Jesus had risen? Because when you, when, you, when you read a book or see a movie that, that doesn't fully wrap everything up, you can't help but imagine what happened. And what Mark is trying to get you to do and get me to do is ask myself, how do I respond to the news that Jesus has risen. For 2,000 years, that's been the question that really everyone on the planet needs to think through. What will you do with the resurrection? Because Jesus has risen. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, I love you, Lord. I thank you that you died for our sins, Lord, that you died for my sin so that I could be forgiven of everything I've ever done so that 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 my slate could be wiped totally clean. Jesus, I thank you that, that you took on my sin and replaced it with your righteousness so that I could have eternal life and know, know God and be with God forever. Lord, I pray for people, uh, I pray for Christians first. Lord, I pray that we would know why we believe in the resurrection, that we would know why we believe that we've thought through well enough to share with others why we believe, Jesus, that you did rise. Lord, I pray for people here that it's hard to believe, and I get that, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would, like that one guy said to you, that you'd help, help them in their unbelief, Lord. Jesus, if there's anything that's keeping us 
from trusting you, Lord, would you show that to us? Whether it's our first time in church, we've been coming to church for years, Lord. I just don't want to miss knowing you. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this day. It's in your name we pray. Amen.